today, as we continue in our, our, our First Corinthians series, remember, we're dealing with, with questions that they have asked Paul about proper order in worship. And, and today, Paul's addressing communion. Uh, or you might know it as the Lord's Supper. And basically, Paul's going to say, you guys are awful at this. And he paints a picture that, that kind of what's happening as they gather for the Lord's Supper looks a whole lot like that. Like, like that dinner scene that we just watched. It's selfish, and it's arrogant, and it's egotistical, and it's angry. And, and, and in no way, shape, or form is it unifying. See... Here's what communion is supposed to be. The Lord's Supper, right? We call it the Lord's Supper because our Lord Jesus Christ institutes it, right? So you can call it the Lord's Supper if you want. That's all good, right? We also call it communion because um, it is a way that we are communing with God and with one another. We are one as the body, right? We've been unified in Christ, Communion represents that. It represents what God has done for us and how we are connected. And so it's supposed to be this grand, spiritual, significant thing. And what's happening in Corinth is they're treating it like trash. And so when Paul gets to this chunk of scripture, he's going to tell them, look, I got nothing good for you here because you're acting ridiculous. And the best way I could think of ridiculous is, is that dinner scene from Shrek 2. It's worth a watch. Um, if you haven't seen Shrek 1, it's okay. You'll figure it out. Right? It's not a complicated story. Communion is an ordinance. God has instituted Jesus Christ through his practice and then his instruction has instituted two ordinances for the church. One is baptism, the other is communion. Uh, Jesus tells us in Matthew 28 that we are to go and make disciples. Right? And as we go and make disciples, we are to teach them, we are to baptize them. Right? Baptism is an ordinance, it's commanded. And when Paul was in Corinth, he taught the importance of baptism. Right? He taught the importance of baptism, that baptism... Um, and belief go hand in hand, that you are to believe and be baptized. They are inextricably linked, right? One is, is this change that happens in you. The other is an act of obedience that tells everybody about this new reality in you. You believe, you are born again, and you are baptized in obedience to Christ to show a watching world that you are dead to yourself and you are alive in Christ. You are buried in the likeness of his death. You are raised to walk a new life. By the way, we've got baptisms next week, so there's a shameless plug. If you are a believer in Jesus and have not been baptized, then this is my encouragement to you to be baptized, right? It is a command of scripture. It is an ordinance that Christ, by example and by instruction, initiates. Something we are to do. Believe and be baptized. Secondly, he institutes the ordinance of communion, or what we would call the Last Supper. It's not a mistake that it's at Passover. 
right? Passover um, is this thing that happens um, way back in Israel's history. We've talked about this so much. You're like, I know what Passover is, Matt. Well, you're going to have to listen to me tell you about it anyway. Passover happens all the way back um, when Moses is leading the people on the exodus out of Egypt, right? Remember, the people are in bondage. They've been in bondage for 400 years, slaves to Pharaoh and the rest of Egypt. And now it's gotten to the point where, where Pharaoh has actually decided there are way too many of them. And so he's going to kill the male children, right? And, and just the oppression is outrageous against the Jews, against the nation of Israel. And so God sends Moses as his agent to bring them out of the land. And of course, Pharaoh won't listen. And God says, I knew he wasn't going to listen. So he brings plagues. There are a total of 10 plagues. The 10th plague is the death of the firstborn. It is a significant, significant plague, right? Because what happened is as the angel of death went through the community, all of Egypt, every firstborn child was struck dead. Think about that. Like, oh, what a great Bible story. I mean, it's in there. Every firstborn child struck dead. But God said, I will show, I will show my deliverance. People that are with me, people that have chosen to follow God and honor God and serve God, here's how I will deliver them, redeem them, and protect them. They are to sacrifice a lamb, a one-year-old spotless lamb without defect. And they are to take the blood of the lamb and they are to cover the doorpost of their home. Smear it on there. And the blood of the lamb will serve as a substitute for the firstborn in the home. The blood of the lamb serves as a substitute. And so the angel of death on that night, instead of stopping at that house to claim the firstborn, would pass over the home. That's the Passover feast. And when that was done, God said, Here, here's the deal. Remember it. Don't forget that redemption costs blood. Don't forget, right? Don't forget that you need a substitution. So you remember this yearly at a festival. And so every year the Israelites practice, they still do, they practice something called Passover, the Passover feast, the Passover celebration. That was the night right? That Jesus gathered with his disciples in the upper room. They were enjoying the Passover feast together. Listen, that's not just a weird coincidence. That's Jesus explaining to them, showing them that he is the greater Passover, right? That that Passover was temporary, a temporary sacrifice, a temporary covering for their sin, a substitution but that he was the permanent sacrifice, the permanent substitution, the permanent atonement that redemption costs. Redemption costs blood and that he was willing to pay it. And so that night, Jesus shared 
what we know as the Last Supper, communion, the Lord's Supper with his disciples. And he gave them instructions to do it, to remember it, to practice it. And Paul taught the church that. When he was in Corinth, when he was establishing the church, Paul taught them. And since his teaching, they have jacked it up. So here's uh, what he says to their questions. Go ahead and open up. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 17 and we're going to finish the chapter. Won't take us long. And then we're actually going to practice communion together. Um, and so pay attention. There will be a test. <laughs> You're chuckling. We're taking a test. It's a practical test. It involves taking communion, right? But it'll be okay. I promise. Okay. Here's the deal. But Paul starts this way. In the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. Now, remember last week when Paul started the chunk about um, understanding headship in the church, he starts by saying, hey, I commend you for this. I taught you. You're following through. Let me expand. Right? He actually started that section with, good job, guys. Keep working hard. Let me help you understand, but you're doing a good job. He starts this section with, I got nothing good for you. I can't commend you because what you're doing is actually hurting rather than helping. Right? He says, when you come together, it's not for good, but for worse. By coming together, you're actually doing bad. I want you to wrap your head around how ridiculous that is. They are gathering in the name of Jesus Christ to worship and glorify the risen Jesus, their Savior, who has saved them from death. They know it. They've accepted it. They've been baptized into it. They're gathered together to say, thank you, Jesus, for giving us life. You're like, well, how could that be bad? Well, whatever it is that they're doing, it's so bad that Paul says, when you gather to celebrate your new life in Christ and what he has accomplished for you, it's actually doing bad rather than doing good. It is that problematic that you're actually making things worse. And there's a warning there for us as a church. Like, like if we're not careful, we can actually do it wrong to the degree that we cause problems. For us, right, our mission is to bring a hurting world the hope of Jesus Christ. So I guess for us to do more harm than good would be by our gathering, by our worship, we're actually pushing people away from Jesus instead of bringing people closer to him. Right? And if we, even if we're doing that in the name of our risen Savior, but if by our actions we're pushing people away from Jesus, that's problematic. Okay, but he says, I, I, can't, I can't commend you on this. He continues. Why can't he commend them? Well, he says, well, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. Anybody remember from week two? Who did he hear from? What's her name? Chloe, right? Chloe ratted on them. He heard from Chloe that there are divisions. He says, I hear in the first place, I, I can't commend you in how you're doing communion because I hear that there's divisions among you. He says, and I believe it. I believe it. In part, I believe it because there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine may be recognized. See, here, here's what's happening in the church in Corinth. Um, there are divisions and cliques that have happened. The church in Corinth is a lot like middle school, right? A lot of cliques, a lot of groups. 
I hope high school is better, but I'm not sure. I hope church is better, but I'm not sure. Right? Because Paul says it's still the same thing. And, and, and we have cliques and we have to be careful. He says, I, I, I believe that these divisions are real. And there's cliques and there's groups. And here's the problem with cliques. Right? It, it, it keeps people out. Now, close friendships are not an issue. Right? Paul isn't saying it's wrong to have close friendships in the church. You should have close friendships in the church. You should have community in the church. You should have your people. Right? But when you draw dividing lines, right, and you allow people in and you keep other people out, that's when we've started to create division instead of community. You know, here's the deal. A lot of people come to the church, and the first reason that they come to the church isn't necessarily because they're looking for Jesus. They are. They just don't know it. A lot of times when people come to the church, what they're looking for first is community. They're looking for a place to belong. They're looking for people to connect with. They're looking for a tribe. They're looking for their people. Right? And if we have such a culture that, that we keep people out, right? They come hungry and looking for community, but our culture keeps them out. We're doing more harm than good. Paul says, look, church in Corinth, you're doing more harm than good here. I got nothing to commend you because there are so many divisions. And the divisions that Paul's talking about are the same divisions that we struggle with. Well, they're not like me. Right? Paul's talking about divisions that stem from, from people that are, are they're not in the same socioeconomic class as me. They're poor, and we know it. They look shabby. They're a different race. They're a different nationality. Right? They're just different than I am. Right? In that day, they're slaves, and I'm free. And so they've, they, they've gotten clicky and they've drawn dividing lines, keeping people out of the fellowship, keeping people out of community based on some of these other factors that Jesus came to abolish. Look at what Paul says in Galatians. He says, for your children of God through faith in Jesus Christ and all have been united. All who have been united with Christ in baptism have, have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. You're different than you used to be. If you're a Christian, then you have put on Christ. He is your covering. And in that, we are now all unified. There is no longer Jew or Gentile. There is no longer slave or free, male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Right? That's just the reality. We're unified. But what Paul says is, I can't commend you because you're still operating in these divisions. And of all places that you shouldn't be acting that way, it's when you celebrate communion. Because what does communion tell us? It tells us that we can put on Christ. And when we put on Christ, we're unified. We're not who we were. 
And so he says, I, I can't commend you for this. And then he says this thing here too. He's like, I believe it because, right, there must be factions among you in order for those that are genuine to be recognized. You know what the word genuine implies very clearly? It implies that there are also fakes. What Paul is saying is that in the fellowship of believers, there are some folks that are genuine and there are some folks that are faking it. And honestly, I think that's true in every church. Now, I'm not throwing stones at anybody, and I don't have anyone in particular in my mind, right? When I say this, it's always one of those worrisome things, right? Like, oh, he's talking about... No, I'm not. I'm just telling you what the Bible says, that that at some point, there are people that are genuine. And if there are people that are genuine, then that also means there are people that are not. Now, here's the reality, right? We've said this every week, it seems like, during this series. The front door of the church is wide open. Everyone is welcome to be here, right? Anybody that's looking for Christ, looking for community, looking for purpose, looking for meaning, looking for... Come on in. You do not have to think exactly like we think, right? And so there are people here that are not genuinely following Jesus. Here's the difference. Most of those people have never claimed to be. They don't walk through the door saying, I'm a Christian, that's why I'm here. They walk through the door seeking, and they're honest about it. I don't know what they're doing down there, but they are doing it. (laughs) Thanks. Carrie and I have been married long enough that she speaks Matt. (laughs) And apparently, um, that was clear enough. I'm like, I don't know what they're doing down there, but they're doing it. And so she gets up and shuts the door. So... um, because my train of thought has left the station. Oh, yes, I remember. Thank you. Um, here's, here's, the, here's the catch. There are people in the church that aren't seeing, that aren't followers of Jesus. They haven't surrendered to Jesus, and they know it, and they don't pretend to be anything other than seeking. But what Paul's referring to here is the people that claim holiness— They claim righteousness, but they just don't have it. It's fake. Either they're believing on something that isn't Jesus for their salvation, or they're just going through the motions, or maybe they're just flat out pretending for whatever reason. But he says, look, I believe that there's divisions among you. You need divisions, like divisions, and this kind of pressure will show us who's genuine and who's not. In a lot of ways, that's true. And you know what? That's true for our church and our culture. The more pressure there is on the church, right? The more tension comes on the church, the more we get to see who's genuinely a follower of Jesus. Because when tension comes onto the church and you pack up and you go because it's just not worth it, Well, that that shows that the genuineness maybe wasn't there. But when pressure and tension come on the church and you dig in and you connect with the community of believers and you worship God in spite of the pressure, that's genuine. Paul says hardships aren't a surprise in the church. In fact, they're actually okay sometimes because they help us discern what's real, what's genuine. He keeps going. He says... um, when you come together, right, you're actually not participating in the Lord's Supper. 
You think you are, but you're not, right? That's not what you're eating, right? And I, I know it's not what you're eating because the Lord's Supper is supposed to be something that binds you together. Instead, this is something that drives you apart. In eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. And then Paul says this with incredulity, like, don't you have houses to eat in or drink in? Why in the world would you come together in such rebellion? Why would you despise the church of God and humiliate those that have nothing in this way? And he says, what are you doing? See, what these things were called, they were called love feasts. These, these events were called love feasts, and, and they would happen with regularity. We read in Acts 2 that, that from the birth of the church, the church gathered together in community. Why? Because people are looking for community, and we know that growth and faith happens best in community. And so people would come together for community, and they would eat together. Um, you guys thought Baptists invented potlucks. They did not. The early church did right? Baptists added the red punch that makes it a potluck. Something I learned when I was at Bethany is it's not really fellowship unless there's red punch, okay? But, but this is a common thing from the early church, and, and, and it was you come and you bring what you can, and when you bring what you can, everybody shares together. So those that have little or nothing, they end up with plenty, and those who have a lot, they still end up with plenty, right? So everybody brings and comes together, and we eat together, and we are unified together, and we're one together. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor or a Jew or a Gentile or slave or free or a man or a woman. We come together, and we eat together, and we all are satisfied. We love each other. It's a love feast. And it always ended then when it was done with the celebration of the Lord's Supper. But Paul says, what you're doing, I can't commend you for what you're doing because what you're doing isn't really communion, right? First of all, it's division-based. Second of all, some of you are shaming others, you're despising others by the way you act. And in despising others, your brother and sister in Christ, you're actually despising Jesus. Listen to me. You get that, right? When you despise a brother and sister in Christ, you are despising God. That's the way it works, right? Like if I'm despising this person that God died for, that he made new in Christ, then I'm despising the one who did it. Paul says, I, I, I can't. He's like, am I supposed to commend you for this? I can't commend you for this. And, and then he says this. It's, it's like, don't you have these homes? It's like you're doing it on purpose. It's kind of what he's saying here. He's like, why are you doing this on purpose? It's not like you just made a mistake. It's not like, it's not like you just forgot to include somebody. It's like you do this on purpose. And, and, and couldn't you have done it at home? Right? If you didn't want to share, just eat at home before you come. Drink at home before you come. See, I think, I think the problem is the same problem that we were seeing in Acts 6, right? And so you get Matt's commentary on this. Paul didn't say this. Matt says this. I think what's happening based on, on what we saw in the early church in Acts when some of the widows were being overlooked in the feud distribution, the food distribution, right? What, what happens is that some people have decided 
that others don't deserve it. Some people had decided, I've worked hard for what I have. I'm not sharing it with them. They don't deserve it. They're not like me. If they want what I have, maybe they ought to work harder for it. Right? Or maybe they ought to find somebody else to help support them or do whatever. I, I, I don't know exactly what's going on here, but, but it feels like it did when, when the early church had to deal with, when the, the apostles had to deal with the distribution of food because some people were being overlooked. It wasn't accidental. It was intentional. They're not like us. They shouldn't get to share in what we have. We're going to overlook them. This feels like that. Paul says, look, man, if you need it to be about you, then then do it at home. Don't bring that into the fellowship. He's like, I cannot commend you on this. I will not commend you on this. But you'll notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, so just knock it off. Cancel all the love feasts. Forget about the Lord's Supper. Just let it go. You guys are doing it wrong, so don't do it. No, it's important. It's necessary. So instead of telling them to stop it, he corrects their thinking about it. And there are four things that we're supposed to do when we come to communion. And the next verses that that end the chapter, he's going to tell us those four things. The first thing is this. When you take communion, you are to look backwards. It is absolutely critical that when you take communion, you are to look backwards. Here's what he says. I received from the Lord what I delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant, my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So here's, here's the deal, right? It's important for you when you come to communion to look backwards, You look backwards, right? Because we're remembering what was accomplished on our behalf. And what was accomplished on our behalf was significant, right? In fact, Jesus says it twice there as he's instituting this, as he's sharing. Do it in remembrance of me. This is my body. When you eat the bread, you're eating my body, right? Not physically, And I know some churches and some denominations and some things have different ways of viewing that. I think we are right. I feel confidently that we're right. When we eat bread, when we eat the wafer, when we have the, it's kind of bread, whatever that is, when we have it, right? You're not eating the flesh of Jesus. He's not saying, hey, this is quite literally going to be my body that you put in your mouth and eat. Right? That, that's not what he's saying. He's saying metaphorically, though, this is, this is a reminder. Do this. Eat this. And remember, as you eat it, you're remembering. Remember what my body was for you. What was his body? His body was our sacrifice. His body took the place of the one-year-old perfect spotless lamb. Right? The lamb had to die because redemption costs blood. And it was the blood of the lamb, the dead lamb, the body that was broken, that substituted for us. It was temporary. And Jesus says, no, I'm instituting this thing that's bigger. My body 
is going to be broken for you. It's not a temporary substitution from an animal that's created. It is a permanent substitution from the uncreated God of the universe. That's my body, and it's broken for you. So what you need to do when you eat it is you need to remember what I did for you. And the blood that he took that covered the doorposts, the blood that entered into the covenant that said, okay, here's the covenant. Covenant is just agreement. Here's the old covenant. Here's the agreement. The blood of that lamb will cover you for now. That was the old covenant. That was the old agreement. The blood of that lamb that I smeared on the doorposts, that we sprinkled, it covers me for now. But he says, my blood, my blood is a new covenant. It doesn't cover you for now. It covers you forever. When you come to Jesus Christ, the blood of the lamb covers you. And he says, so remember what it is. Communion, we, listen, if we're going to do communion with honor, we have to look back. We look back because his body was broken and his blood was poured out as a substitution. So when we have communion, it's important that we look back and remember. Also, when we have communion, Paul says we have to look ahead, right? Why? Verse 26, because as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, as often as we participate in communion or the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes back. When you take communion, this is why we say communion is only for believers. You don't have to be a member of Blessed Hope Church to take communion with us. But you are supposed to be a Christian to take communion. Because in taking communion, you're looking back to recognize what Jesus did for you. His body broken, his blood poured out, the new covenant. And also, when you take communion, you are looking forward and proclaiming to anyone that knows you're taking communion. I am testifying to the truth that this has happened and that Jesus is coming back. When you take communion, you do it not only with an eye to what Jesus has done, but you look with an eye towards what will be happening next. And there will be a point when Jesus will come back. He is our blessed hope, our namesake, right, as a church. Titus, right, we are waiting for the, the blessed hope hope, the appearance, the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ coming back. This is what we're waiting for. We know in Revelation that there will be a moment where Jesus will establish his rule and death and sin and pain and suffering will be a thing of the past. And he will wipe away every tear and he will make everything right. We're waiting for that. When you take communion, you're not only looking back to what Jesus has done for you, but you're looking ahead at what is going to happen and you're doing it with confidence. And when you take communion, you are saying, I believe it is happening. I believe it's real. I believe it's true. We say it with confidence. We keep going. Also, when we take communion, because of what it meant when we look backwards and because of what it says about looking forwards, we must also look in. We must also look inwards. Here's what Paul says. Whenever, therefore, whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty 
concerning the body and blood of the Lord. That makes sense, right? He died for you, his body, his blood. It was for you, right? It it was this act of sacrifice for you. So if I go and I eat it unworthily, then I'm guilty. I'm guilty of defaming what God did. I'm guilty of despising the cross. And so Paul says this, let a person examine himself, right? And anyone who eats without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. You're like, well, Matt, what does it mean to eat or drink judgment on yourself? When you come to communion and you take communion and you have not looked inward and you are not right with God. Paul says, as a consequence, you have judgment. And because of that judgment, some of you were weak. Some of you got real sick. And some of you even died. I want to I stop here because if we're not as familiar with the New Testament as we ought to be, we might get a little bit concerned there. Right? We might be a little bit confused about who this God is that would cause some people to die because they're taking communion unworthily. Because that is exactly what that says. Paul says, in the church in Corinth, some of you blasphemed communion so much. Some of you went to the Lord's table in a such irreverent and disrespectful manner, despising God, despising what he had done, that when you took communion, which was supposed to be celebrating what he did and celebrating what's happening next, he just ended you. Some of you got real sick. And some of you he just put to death. Now, on your death certificate, it probably didn't say smote by God. Probably said COVID-19. That was a terrible joke. That was a bad joke and I'm sorry. I'm better than that. I will fix it for second service. Come back, I promise. Here's what it said. Natural causes. Said, oh man, that guy had a heart attack. I, I, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Matt, they didn't have death certificates then. I know, but you get my point. My point is they didn't walk around thinking, oh man, God struck that guy dead. Lightning bolt from heaven hit him, right? But Paul is saying, hey, have you noticed this rash of illnesses and deaths that have happened in your fellowship? It's like, that's not an accident. God did that. You thought somebody had a diabetic coma. Or they went into shock, or that it was cancer, or that it was something else. But you know what it was? It was God in his discipline. Like, that, that should feel heavy to you. That, that should feel real heavy. But, if you judged yourselves truly, if you examine yourselves, then God wouldn't have to judge you. But Paul adds this because, you know, people are going to ask, okay, so if God struck somebody dead because they weren't taking communion worthily, are they in hell now? Right? That's a natural question. It's a natural thing we're going to wonder. They were Christians, right? So they were taking communion because they were believers and they loved Jesus and they recognized Jesus. But in this moment, they are just blaspheming God by, by doing this with disrespect. God has struck them dead. Are they in heaven right? And Paul says, look, just, he doesn't even, he doesn't even address it. He just says, when we're judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we are not condemned along with the world. You know, Paul is saying here, he's like, yes, there, there is discipline and it might feel harsh to you, 
But God does what he does to save you from condemnation. God does what he does because he loves you. You're like, how could God strike somebody dead out of love? Well, trust me, heaven is better than hell. And it's okay. You're like, well, Matt, I would, yeah, you're not God. You're like, I would never make that decision. Of course you wouldn't make that decision. You're not entitled to make that decision. You don't know what God knows. You, 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 you don't have the infinite wisdom and power of God. You can't make that decision. But God can. And he's faithful. And we need to trust him. And so Paul's point here is that we must look inward. So ask me how we look inward. That's a great question. There's four things we need to do, and this is where we'll stop. I mean, I'm going to tell you, then we'll stop, and we're going to practice this together. Some of you are thinking, there's two more verses, I know, and we'll deal with them um, next time. Or I'll write to you about them in the newsletter, something. We'll, we'll take care of them. But, but, but here, here are the things that we need to do, because this is the meat of what Paul's saying. He's like, you look backwards. You look forwards, right? And you've got to look inside. You've got to look inside. Here's how you look inside. Self-examination. David wrote about this in the Psalms. He said, search my heart, O God, and show me if there is any wickedness in me. And I'm going to say to you, that all of us should be praying that. Search my heart, O God, and show me if there is any wickedness in me. However, I will also say this to you. Some of us, we really don't need God to help us search that out. Some of us know where our wickedness lies. Some of us know full well, right? We know full well where we are acting in a way that is contrary to what God would ask from us. And when you know whether you're asking God to search your heart and he is bringing something to your mind, or you just know because you know that a way you're acting is not honoring to God, that it's sin and you're harboring it in your life, when you know, right, it is really, really dangerous for you to know that you've got this sin in your life that you aren't trying to take care of and to go say, thanks God for dying for me. Thanks for the body that was broken and the blood that was poured out and, and thank you for the fact that you're coming back to, to, to fix everything. I'm acknowledging all of that while I just keep on sinning. That's a dangerous place to be. Paul says you've got to examine yourself. And when you examine yourself, where there's sin, you have to confess it. You have to confess it. Confession, you know what this really is when you confess? It means not just acknowledging it, but agreeing with God that it's wrong. Not just saying, yeah, God, I know I'm doing something you don't like while I continue to do it. But God, I'm doing something that's wrong, and I know it's wrong, and I agree with you that it's wrong. And you recommit, repent. You make a decision that you will actually act on to say, God, yes, in, in examining myself, in, in showing 
my heart, I see this sin. I agree with you that it's wrong and I confess it to you. And now I recommit to walking away from it, to repenting and to living the life that you want me to live. And then where it's necessary, you restore relationships. You restore relationships. Now, I don't know what that means for you. Sometimes it means an internal decision to restore a relationship. You know, sometimes it means you actually need to go to somebody and have a conversation before you take communion. Sometimes it means you just decide with God's help that you are going to start letting go of some hurts and you're going to forgive people. Maybe it means you need to go and ask forgiveness, right? That's going to be different for everybody, but these are the things that we're asked to do. Examine ourselves, look inside. Confess where you need to confess. Agree with God that it's wrong. Recommit yourself. Repent, following God with your whole heart. And if there's restoration to do, then do it. That's, that's what we practice with communion. We look back at what he did. The body broken, the blood poured out, ushering in the new covenant. We look forward when we take communion that he is coming back to fix everything. And I find myself worthy to participate when I look inward. Father God, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you. Amen. Go in peace.